I'm Luke. Infoblast. Luke was born in Surrey in 1978. He enjoys riding roller coasters and building Lego. I'm John. Infoblast. John was born in Billinge Hospital, Greater Manchester, massively undermining his so-called Scouse credentials. What's going on with these Infoblasts? It's edgy, it's fresh, it's dangerous. It's distracting and annoying and patronising. It's all of that. It's youth TV on Cracking TV. They spend their whole lives watching TV Now they're sharing their opinions with you Cos now they want to have some fun With a channel that is all brand new Get comfy and without further ado No choose the shows that you want to view It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV Luke and John Cracking TV Welcome to Cracking TV. We're Luke and John and we're on a mission to create the dream schedule for our own network, Cracking TV. Each episode, we'll be talking about classic shows from a particular genre, picking one to fill a slot in our schedule. We'll be taking it in turns to be the commissioner in the picture. The picture will bring a number of shows in the hope of scoring that big commission. However, the commissioner has already got a first-rate show in mind. The pitcher desperately wants one of his shows to win and avoid the embarrassment of being thrown out of the commissioner's office. This week, I'm the Commissioner. John, thank you for coming in. I've asked you to pitch a youth TV show for Cracking TV, so please fill my slot with something engaging and surprising, maybe even outrageous. Well, let's get right to it, because these shows are supposed to be fast-moving. Okay. So since the 1960s, there had been shows aimed at teenagers and young adults. Yeah. In 1966, BBC One had a show called A Whole Scene Going, which covered issues such as employment, housing and holidays, and would also have a popular band performing. Right, so you get the popular band after sitting through a serious debate. (laughs) I think so. It's very hard to find any footage of it. Very little of it now exists. Um, But what we do have is some famous people talking about it. Mick Jagger, for instance, wasn't a fan. He said, uh, I don't know, that's not how he talks, is it? Uh, no, no. Good game, good game. <laughs> he said, I don't know what to say about it without being rude. Oh dear. <laughs> In 1978, though, BBC Two showed the pilot of Something Else, right. which was a show aimed at 16 to 20-year-olds, so quite a narrow demographic. Yeah. The pilot episode featured The Clash in their only televised performance for the BBC. Do you know what songs they did? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Rock the Caspar was later, wasn't it? Um, Maybe London Calling? No, it was Clash, City Rockers and Tommy Gun. Okay. But despite having that big band of the day on, it actually took a while for the BBC to pick this up and give it a series. So it was 18 months later that the first series proper appeared. Okay, that's a while, isn't it? Now, you will get a sense of how uh, trendy and exciting this was when I tell you which department within the BBC produced the programme. Oh, yeah. Go on. It was the BBC Community Programme Unit. Yeah, okay, yeah. Sounds like people who should be organising a village fete, doesn't yes. it? They'll be there with their blue rinds and organising a jam sale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This show, um, something else, it was presented by unknown, untrained presenters. But just because they were unknown and untrained, please don't think they weren't excellent at their craft. Have a listen to this. Hello, this is something else from Manchester. And for anyone who doesn't know just what they're in for, I'd better explain. This is a show for people from 16 to 20, so anyone else is more than welcome to watch. And it's been dreamed up and put together by a bunch of eight of us, all in that age group and all living in the Manchester area. I want to introduce you to everyone on the production team. It'd take far too long and you'd never remember all our names anyway. 
but what you're going to see is all our own work, with some help from the professionals. There's a bit of everything in the show, and of course, lots of music. Here's the jam with Eaton Rifles, one of the numbers on their new album. Well, she's quite engaging, isn't she? <laughs> I don't think she's got a career in TV ahead of her. Each episode of the series would come from a different city across the UK. Oh, right. I assumed it was all just Manchester-based, but no. No, okay. no, it was a different one each time, so right. it was almost like a, a proto-why-don't-you. Yeah, I was going to say. There'd be a production hub base in the city, right. and eight or nine local young people would work from that BBC office, and they would edit the show and choose the bands. Usually they would pick a band from their city, or maybe they were encouraged to do so, so yeah, it was easier to get them to get into them the in. studio. But sometimes it would just be a popular chart act. Yeah. And this was a magazine format, and it would talk about issues that young people cared about, along with these performances by up-and-coming bands. Mm. And so the topics you would get would be unemployment, drugs, sexuality, family issues, video games, nightlife, you know, everything that in the early 80s young people would want to talk about, right? Yeah, but it was the way they presented those conversations. I mean, they sort of tried to do it like a debate almost and get the young people talking off the cuff. It's quite cheesy. It, it definitely was. You're absolutely right. The production schedule was unusual, certainly for the first series. Uh, the episodes would come out monthly, and then it'd be repeated a few days later. Right. But from the second series, it was more traditional in that it would have a weekly episode. Makes more sense. For one show in the third series, Paul Weller from The Jam was given control of the show instead of the uh, non-celebrity youths, and he chose for there to be um, an episode all about inequality. Oh, yeah. And was there a notable increase in quality because he was, you know, that bit older and that bit more professional? Um, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there were still young people working on the show. Right. And, you know, I, I mean, Paul Weller's great at many things, but he's not the most engaging screen presence anyway. No, no. When he's, he is when he's on stage, but not when he's talking. No, that, that's, that's true. So each item, it wasn't like fast moving as we will come to expect from youth TV as we get further into the topic. Mm. For example, they did a piece on what is a teenager and it was seven minutes long. Seven which was minutes? Interminable and it included lengthy vox pops. And again, you know, we're going to talk about how youth TV goes on to bring up these new imaginative TV devices. Vox Pops are just about the most cliched thing you can do on broadcasting, right? Oh, I hate Vox Pops. And the thing is, you know that they will just record as many as they need until they get the person that makes the point they want to say. But you're watching this episode, you watch these seven minutes on what is a teenager, and then just unannounced, it goes into the next item. And you've been starting to despair at the quality of this programme. Yeah. And then suddenly, on an escalator in a shopping centre, it's John Cooper Clark, the genius poet. Yes. And he's performing Evidently Chicken Town, which is a fantastic piece of work. It would later close an episode of The Sopranos, which shows how wide its influence was. Yeah. And it just makes you want to leap out of your seat and cheer and go, this is actually suddenly a fantastic bit of TV. Almost the boredom that's led up to it makes it more special when you get this diamond in the rough. Sure, they didn't deliberately set out to make a boring bit of TV no. so that John Cooper Clark then did leap out at you. But obviously, I mean, he is obviously a brilliant person, but yeah, fantastic that you got that moment. Yeah, they still managed to undermine it because, you know, kids are stupid, right? So the, um, a caption appears on the screen and it says, is this a poem by John Cooper Clark? 
because evidently Chicken Town, you know, it was a bit of punk poetry. Mm. Is this poetry or not? That's a really patronising question. If I was a 19-year-old in 1979, I'd just be like, that's so inane, piss off. Yeah. You just need to put up a caption that says John Cooper Clark and then be done with it. Yeah. Or, or do something that in itself is artistic and creative, but yeah. not just such a, a on-the-nose, kind of boring question. Mm. The same episode featured Joy Division in what was their last appearance on TV and indeed their only nationally broadcast TV performance. Oh, yeah. You got the clash wrong. Do you want to guess which songs Joy Division did? I don't know. Uh, Transmission? They did do Transmission, yes, and She's Lost Control. Okay. And Joy Division were interviewed along with their label boss and Granada TV legend, Tony Wilson. Or just legend Tony Wilson. Yeah, absolutely. Joy Division, of course, would later evolve into New Order and they will be popping up again in this story. Oh, I wonder how. The same episode, again, that had John Cooper Clark and Joy Division on it featured a section about life in Rochdale and an interview with local MP Cyril Smith. Oh, yes. Which doesn't make for easy watching given what we now know about him, especially mm. as he's saying we should reduce the legal drinking age and allow alcohol in youth clubs. No. Yeah, it's not comfortable. So, yeah, all told, all the things that you've said or implied in criticism of this show are absolutely right. And it was considered ripe for satire, and it was very widely satirised, both by the Oxbridge set of comedians who made Not the Nine O'Clock News. Oh, yes. Hi, welcome to Hey Wow. This is a programme that's different. It's not only for you, young people, kids, youth, whatever. It's by you. It's your input that's going to make it. Later on, we've got great music from Lufthansa Terminal. We've got mine from Alternative Car Park. We've got some amazing Greek television commercials. Shut up! <laughs> Can't you? For God's sake, I can hardly hear myself think! <laughs> First issue makes people here very angry indeed. Unemployment. Oh, no. not unemployment. <laughs> yes, unemployment. One of the things I like about that sketch is the Rowan Atkinson character doing the mime. I am a mime and my body is my tool. <laughs> yes. Um, and it was also satirised by the red brick punks who made the young ones. My name's Baz, and me and my mates thought the TV just wasn't now. Right? I expect, like us, you're not into all that stuff your old man's into, right? So, we just thought we'd have a programme for us, right? And this is it, nosing around. Yeah, N-O-Z, Z for that. It's a programme for young adults, made by young adults, and concentrating on all the subjects that young adults are interested in, like unemployment. Maggie! Really great! Hi! Well, I'm standing up here on this scaffolding because that's what this programme is all about. Shock! Young adults? Yeah, Ben Elton there. So something else ran until 1982. Right. It is my first pitch. And the reason I'm pitching it is because it was curated by young people. Yes. It mixed music, arts and current affairs. It could be a bit embarrassing and amateurish. I'm not going to hide from that. But if we're going to rule shows out on that basis, then you're not going to find anything to fill your slot. Well, I suppose, yes. And it definitely paved the way for the other shows that we're going to hear about today. Yeah, I suppose it's fair to say it is more or less the first show that, that is doing that. Yeah. Infoblast. The BBC's next attempt as a youth show was the Oxford Road Show, which ran on BBC Two between 1981 and 1985. 
It came from Broadcasting House, Oxford Road, Manchester. It would open with a graphic saying the weekend starts here. For further information on the historical significance of this phrase, load Cracking TV episode 10 from 1 minute 39 seconds. The Oxford Roadshow was mainly a music programme, but it did have sections covering youth issues and topical phone-ins. Ben Elton had a regular stand-up slot on the show. Ironic, because as John said earlier, Ben had previously taken the piss out of UTV, and it's not like Ben Elton to be a hypocrite. Uh, who's responsible if the info blast says something libelous? Ah, uh, don't worry, Ben Elton's got a sense of humour. Hopefully. So where are you going next? For my second pitch, I'm going to talk about Network 7. Oh yes. We've previously talked about the tube and how, as well as pop music, that had segments covering youth issues. Infoblast, load Cracking TV, episode 10 from 28 minutes, 3 seconds. These Infoblasts are going to get annoying. <laughs> well, strap in, because this is what Network 7 is all about. Right. In many ways, this is Channel 4's follow-up to the tube. Right. Now let's think about where we are in time. It's 1987. Yeah. So what are you and I, like eight or nine years old? We're a little bit yeah. too young for this. It's only a year since Sieg Sieg Sputnik were in the charts with Love Missile F-111. And Sputnik were a heavily hyped band whose music and image really borrowed from glam, punk and high energy Euro disco dance. Sure, yeah. And their song shamelessly stole samples from movies. Mm. And the video was also full of supposedly stolen footage, so it was giving an information overload effect. Lots of graphics, incredible fast cutting, and bits and pieces from the news, from live band performances, and from Japanese culture. So it came across as quite futuristic. Yeah, exactly. Futuristic, postmodernistic, and there was a conceit that your TV had been hacked. You weren't watching the video. Mm. They had taken over your TV with this pirate broadcast from Sputnik Network Television. Right, right. And it didn't just feature the band, it featured... The band sort of had this whole entourage of people who worked with them who were also in the video and name-checked in the video, one of whom who was featured very prominently was their publicist, whose name was Magenta Divine. Mm. Now, Sig Sig Sputnik ultimately flopped, but some of the stuff that they did in that video was quite clearly an influence on Network 7. Yeah. Network 7 was emphatically supposed to be a channel within a channel, meant to feel like your TV is being hacked, it had incredible fast cutting, it had bits of culture stolen from all over the place, and it had a presenter called Magenta Divine. Of course. Now, we both came of age in the 90s, and by that time, if you heard anybody talking about Network 7 or Sieg Sieg Sputnik at all, it was sort of as a punchline, right? Yeah. They were remembered, both of them, as being a bit shoddy, a bit pretentious, a bit overhyped, and most importantly, a short-lived failure. And perhaps that's not fair. I think it's time to take another look. Yeah. This is not the podcast at which to take another look at Sieg Sieg Sputnik, but it is the podcast at which to take another look at Network 7. Yeah. The show was created by Jane Hewland, who was 37 at the time, and Janet Street Porter, who was 41. They're not exactly the target demo for uh, youth TV. No, they, they were the pioneers of the genre, but they weren't themselves particularly youthful. But of course, youth is also an attitude. It's not just about age. And so, you know, if they come along with, with the attitude to make this show. Yeah, I think that's right. They were definitely setting out to do something new and innovative and groundbreaking. Yeah. It was broadcast on Sundays from noon until two o'clock. It's quite lengthy, right? Two it hours lengthy. every single I week. Mean, you wouldn't have a show that long these days, would you? The thought of someone sitting down for two hours watching TV. It's alien now, isn't it? It's alien from a viewer's perspective and from a production perspective. That's a lot of content every yeah. week. It came live from a huge studio in London's Docklands, which was actually a former banana warehouse. Yeah, so it had this sort of urban edge just to the presentation, just because yeah. of that. 
The mission statement for Network 7 was news is entertainment, entertainment is news. I don't know if that's a statement you would agree with. I think for, for the sort of stories that, that Network 7 covered, probably. I mean, obviously there is serious stuff in the news, you know, war being the most obvious and depressing yeah. example where you cannot say that. But I think there are a lot of places where you can say news is entertainment and entertainment is news. Certainly you can say entertainment is news. Don't look down on it, I think, is, is also part of it, isn't it? You know, yeah. There are people who would be very snooty at the sort of stories that Network 7 covered. I think that's right. There's also something a little bit vapid in the statement, news is entertainment, entertainment is news. It's, it's, it's a slogan that the more you look at it, the more you think it, maybe it's not really saying anything. And it feels like the sort of thing that would ultimately be parodied on the day to day. Yes. But also... I agree with you that it creates a mindset and that mindset then runs right through the production. Mm. The presenters were pretty much rookies. They weren't professional TV presenters, but they were the people who had devised and produced the pieces. Yes. It's not like they had other researchers or producers going off, coming up with the story, scripting it, and they were just reading it out. So they did develop a little bit of expertise about the thing they were talking about. It is a properly researched programme. Yeah. But I think that is also really important to emphasise in that news is entertainment, entertainment is news piece. It was properly journalistically researched. And as you say, these presenters were the ones doing it. Yeah. And so it gave it an air of authenticity. Yeah. Can you remember the names of any of the presenters? Uh, Well, there was a few, weren't there? I mean, obviously, you've mentioned the wonderful Magenta Divine. Yeah. Charlie Parsons was there. Yeah. um, And I think he'll be coming up again in this this episode because he was so influential. Yeah. Tracy McLeod, I mean, she yes. got her big break and would go on to host other shows. Yeah. Late show in particular on BBC Two, wasn't she? Yeah. Uh, Sanka Guha. Yeah. Um, Sebastian Scott. Yes. Uh, who else was there? Go on. You, you've, you've done very well. Um, there were quite a few others, but Jaswinda Bansil and Murray Bolland were also important. Yeah, Murray would go on and produce in this area, wouldn't he? So it's, it's We'll a, be hearing from him later as well. It's a yeah. proper training ground for, for people who would, would have key roles in TV, certainly for 10 years after Network 7, and in some cases like Charlie Parsons, to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Magenta Divine was the cool one, though. Mm. We know that because she wore sunglasses. She always wore sunglasses, yes. yes. Its visual style was designed to be fresh and innovative. Yeah. Again, I think like we talked about when we discussed the chart show, there's probably a bit of that MTV influence creeping in, which is not something that we really recognised in this country because we hadn't seen MTV yet. Yeah. But its influences also came from other places. A couple of years earlier, Channel 4 had first shown Max Headroom. Of course. And that was a cyberpunk futurist satire of the way TV and celebrity culture were heading. And now Channel 4, rather than satirising that future, were apparently leaning into it. Yeah. Network 7 had lots and lots of self-branding, lots of idents, which, again, you may have seen on American cable TV like MTV, but you certainly did not get on the four British TV channels at the time. No, not not in the same way that you would do today, for example. Exactly. Cameras were shaking and zooming and moving all around the place, which... You know, all right, we first saw that back in the early 60s, didn't we, with... um, On Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah, exactly. And it's here just taken to a further extreme. You know, there's a a deliberate intimacy created by the sort of amateurishness of the way the cameras are moving around. 
sometimes when when people are there with the handheld cameras it's all that they're, they're speaking to someone and they're they're moving the camera all over the place and you feel a bit seasick yeah i didn't quite feel that with network seven i think that's right i they think giving it, me the intimacy i think is the right word yeah. yeah i think it's remembered also as well as the camera shaking for a lot of rapid cuts mm. and and when network seven is satirized it is that you know things are moving incredibly quickly and there's no attention span I don't think watching it now that it's as rapid or as frequent as people might remember it being. No. I mean, some of the segments really did last five, six minutes, right? Yeah. It's not the YouTube generation. Yeah. Or TikTok these days, my friend. Yes. YouTube's positively long form. Yes. And of course, on Network 7, when Janet Street Porter got bored with an item, she'd just tell the camera to move away. Yes. And uh, this was often the first indication that the presenters got that the item was over. <laughs> and there was no longer a camera pointing at them. <laughs> There were lots of pop-up graphics with additional information. Mm. So like what we've been hearing with our info blasts, that's sort of what you now call an info bar is very common on British TV these days. Yes. But it wasn't then. It was cutting edge. It's become part of the normal grammar of news and current affairs, but Network 7 was the pioneer of that. Yeah. And sometimes the info would be sort of directly relevant to the story, but other times it would be really quite random. Yeah. You know, the current temperature in the studio is 30 (laughs) degrees. Yes. Yeah, exactly. They were trying to give a sense of massive amounts of information. Yeah. It was a sort of proto feeling of what the internet might be like when we would reach what already was inevitably coming was a more connected age, right? And we didn't know what that would look and feel like. And this was sort of starting to guess what the 21st century might be like. Yeah. Yeah, Wish so. it was, because their idea of the future was cooler than this one that we're well, looking at. that's true, yes. And it was better research. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Network 7 really did feel like a magazine. I know we talk about magazine TV programs, but this had a contents page at the start. Yeah. And like clearly delineated segments, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. So at the start, you might get a graphic saying that this episode was going to cover pirate television, sexual offences, plastic surgery, and also live coverage of the marriage of an Italian couple. <laughs> And then that marriage would turn out to be a gay couple, which in 1987 was truly radical. I mean, it would have still been radical in 1997 and arguably even 2007. Amazing that they did this in 1987. Absolutely. And they would always try to find interesting angles or new ways to illustrate the story that they're talking about. So if they did an item about street crime, it would open with them in the studio and an audience member's bag being snatched and then the thief running out of the studio and the camera tracking after them um, as the thief escapes outside, right? Yeah. Obviously, the person whose bag has been snatched must be in on the conceit. Yes, but none of the rest of the audience are. That's right. And then the presenter goes around and asks them for witness statements and asks them what they can remember about the crook to illustrate that it happens really fast and and you can't remember very much about what went on. Yeah. That's interesting, right? I mean, again, yeah, it does feel a bit brass eye now that we look back at it. (laughs) Yes. But I have to say I'm pro people trying to find a different way to do a a television item. Absolutely. And yeah, it's dynamic, isn't it? It's in your face, but it's covering a serious issue. Yeah. It's not sensationalist, I don't think. No, I think that's right. Just the right side of that line. They would do a live exorcism. There's me saying it's not sensational. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's not play for laughs. You could take the piss out of it, and they don't. No. 
they did an interview with a man on death row in the United States. Yeah. And then they ran famously. a phone poll asking yeah. viewers whether they thought the man should live or die. And then they cut back to America, giving the verdict to this guy that you had something like 60% of British viewers think you should be killed. Yes. It's <laughs> a, a hard one for the presenter. It's uncomfortable, though, isn't it? Isn't it? That, that, that episode had an interesting opening where the presenter sort of goes through all the different ways that you can be executed. That is really in your face. And he's explaining how you can have have a firing squad and there are people there with fake guns pointing them at him it's also quite chris morris it is very chris morris it reminded me of the segment uh in the day to day i think it's coogan that plays the part where he's going is this cool is this cool how about this is this cool it was exactly that presentational style they also had shows within the show on network seven so they had a short drama serial called flesh and blood Mm. They had a Jerry Anderson claymation detective show called Dick Spanner P.I. <laughs> nice name. Some of their celebrity interviews were quite frivolous and fun. MCA, are you a dog lover? Yeah, especially big ones. And tell me about this dog. I don't know anything about dogs. Well, this is an English sheepdog. Uh, we raised them in the north in Liverpool, and uh, we use him for pulling sleds in the summer. So did you have a dog that pulled sledges in the summer? <laughs> No, but it would have been fun to hang out with the Beastie Boys. It would. But as well as those frivolous interviews, they also had a series of psychological celebrity interviews called Room 113. And they were quite long interviews. Yeah, they were. This Very isn't your 90-second quick check-in with a celeb. It, it's definitely not. It's, it's more like the face-to-face stuff that you were talking about yeah, when we did chat shows. Absolutely. And they had a segment called True or False, which in a way was like a, a less comedic Would I Lie to You, sort of several decades ahead of its time. Well, and again, a lengthy segment. Yeah. These true or false stories, they'd be like a three, four minute film. Yeah. And they'd tell you if it was true or false the following week. Yes. You just want to know if it's true or false. Yeah. A week's a long time. Yes. They were pioneers, the Network 7 producers, of what we would come to call reality TV. Mm. So, for example, they sent a load of ordinary people to live in a nuclear bomb shelter for a week. Yes. Very proto Big Brother. Yeah. And I think in many ways, and this is perhaps jumping ahead to the conclusion of the show a bit prematurely, but youth TV isn't the same anymore. I mean, obviously, partly because a lot of the influences of youth TV have sort of filtered through to, in inverted commas, mainstream TV. Yeah. But the sort of programmes, probably in the last 20 years, that the upcoming producers work on and the shows that you might say are being aimed at at younger people, they are reality shows, right? Yeah. Big Brother in the early 2000s. Today, it's probably still just about Love Island, though obviously it's gone off the boil a bit. But certainly over the last five, six years, it's been Love Island. Yeah, I think that's right. So Network 7 only ran for 44 episodes for a year and a half, May 1987 to October 1988. But its influence for such a short-lived show has been undeniable. I think it's one of the most influential programmes in TV history. So that's my pitch for Network 7. Okay. Over at the BBC, they noticed what was happening at Channel 4, and they decided they wanted a piece of it. Mm. So, of course, they thought, let's build from the ground up, start from first principles, and decide what's great about this, and make something brand new. Yeah. No, they didn't. Alan Yentob, who was the then controller of BBC2, just poached Janet Street Porter and made her head of youth and entertainment features. This was after just one series of Network 7. And it's said that he rang her within 24 hours of becoming controller of BBC Two. Right. One of the first things she did when she got to the BBC, as we've talked about, was cancel the old grey whistle test. Yes. 
Infoblast, Load Cracking TV, episode 10 from 18 minutes, 13 seconds. Thank you. As well as acting the old grey whistle test, she had to put some programmes on herself. Mm. And rather than just scattering them anywhere around the BBC Two schedule, there was a focused place for it. They gave her her own strand, which aired at 6pm on Mondays and Wednesdays and was called... Def 2. Def 2. There's a few different theories as to why they called it Def 2, but I assume the correct one is just that that was youth slang more in America than over here for, like, cool, like Def, D-E-F. Yeah. It always struck me, even at the time, as a little bit try-hard that the BBC can't pull off something like calling a strand Def 2. It's a bit like your uncle's trying to be cool, or your auntie in this case. Yeah, but no, it is a bit incongruous, isn't it? Now, look, to be clear, I'm not pitching Def 2 because it wasn't a TV programme. It was a TV strand. And if I were to try and pitch it as a programme, you'd run me out of town as (laughs) if I was trying to pitch uh, the children's BBC Broomcomwood as a programme, right? I'm not going to get away with it. No, I don't think you would get away with that. But it is an important part of the youth TV genre. And so there are a few Def 2 shows that I'd like to mention. Okay. Infoblast. Rapido was the name of a French music programme presented by Antoine de Cohn in 1987. After Janet Street Porter saw the programme, she decided to commission an English language version. So that's rather annoying. I was going to talk about Rapido, but the Infoblast person has stolen my thunder. Yeah, well, there you go. That's the problem with these Infoblasts, isn't it? Anyway, never mind. So Rapido was a music programme, and we've already done them, so we're not going to talk about that in too much detail. fair enough. Infoblast, load cracking TV episode. Yes, yes, episode 10. We know you've told us loads of times. <laughs> so speaking of music programmes, there was also Dance Energy with Normski. Remember that? Yeah. This was quite late, actually, in the Def 2 series, wasn't it? It was one of the later programmes. It was. It covered hip-hop and house music. Yeah. And for the last series, they bizarrely retitled it D-Energy. Yeah. Do you have D-Energy? <laughs> <laughs> That's got a slight different meaning these days, hasn't it? It has. And, of course, um, Normski became... Uh, uh, Mr. Janet Street Porter for a little they bit. They were in a relationship together. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I liked Normski. I thought yeah, he yeah. was a likeable on screen figure. Yeah, you see him now on a reminisce show, and he still comes across as a really engaging person. Yeah. He could still be hosting shows. I think so. People used to take the piss out of him, yeah. even in the audience of Dance Energy. Yes. People behind him would be sort of whispering in his ear, you're a wanker, Normski. Yeah, he'll be doing wanker sides <laughs> behind his back for sure. He always took it in good grace. Yeah. I think it's time to make the floor burn. Weirdly, perhaps the most successful show on Def 2 was an American import, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yes. And they would also show like old science fiction programs like Battlestar Galactica, the old version, and Star Trek. Yeah, and that 6pm slot on BBC Two, even outside of the official Def 2 slots, became a sort of youth slot, and it stayed that way for years after Def 2 finished. Yeah, good point. The Simpsons got that slot eventually. Yeah. There were two shows in particular on Def 2 which I think fit the youth TV template that we're really talking about. Mm. Reportage and Rough Guide. Yeah. So Reportage ran from 1989 to 1994. It was produced from the BBC's Oxford Road Studios in Manchester, like the Oxford Road Show. Yeah. But really, rather than being the successor to the Oxford Road Show, it was the successor to Network 7. Yeah. Again, it was the brainchild of Janet Street Porter. Again, it featured Magenta Divine, along with other young reporters, including a very youthful Krishnan Guru Murphy, who's mm-hmm. now of Channel 4 News, and also Esther McVeigh, whatever oh happened to that bright young woman. Yes. Reportage like Network 7, it was brash, inventive, non-conformist, and current affairs. Yep. It was perhaps a little bit slicker than Network 7. Maybe some of the lessons had been learnt from Network 7. And also, it was more 90s, where Network 7 was 80s. There's that 90s gloss to it, slickness, less amateurish. 
the first series, didn't they make it look like the studio linking parts were filmed on a security camera? That was a bit odd. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think they dropped that wisely. Yeah, that's right. It was making even more of an effort than Network 7 was to be um, self-consciously stylish and cool. Yes. You might see a guide on how to fit in with school tribes. When you get bags, you have to get head bags or rainbow bags. Puffer jackets are in there and working jackets, American football jackets, they're all the star now. If you ain't wearing the right clothes, people can really take the mickey out of you. Or you might see a piece about acid house parties and how they were coming under threat from the government and the police. Yeah, it was very insightful. They'd do pieces about the morality of chat lines, which were just a huge, huge, huge current affairs issue at the time. Everyone mm. was always talking about these expensive chat lines, remember? Yeah, you sort of got the impression that if you so much as looked at your phone, you'd run up a chat line bill. Oh, eight, nine, eight. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> yeah. And also, they came live from the Berlin Wall as the Brandenburg Gate was about to be opened. Wow. Really at the cutting edge of news. Yeah, they did this mixture of cutting edge hard news with lighter, more youth lifestyle stuff. For the first three series, there were live elements to each episode. Right. The links in between were live, but that was dropped for series four to six, and it was fully pre-recorded. Right. And the theme tune, remember the theme tune? I do. And, of course, it's by New Order. Yeah. And basically it became World in Motion. Yeah, they reused huge parts of it for the England 1990 World Cup song, that's right. And just as we hear some of the theme in the background from the credit sequence, that sequence, there's an awful lot of people on this show. Yeah, it's not just been thrown together in five minutes. That's right. And I think this is a really important point with Network 7. We've said it already. It's absolutely true here. This is properly research journalism. They're presenting it in a particular way and trying yeah. to be engaging to the youth audience. Yeah. But what you're seeing is of a very high standard. Yeah, it's public service broadcasting. There's no two ways about that. Absolutely. And then there was Rough Guide. Yeah, and actually that's the show that I was already minded to commission. Oh, okay. So Rough Guide was the first breakout hit of the Deaf 2 Strand. Uh, it started on Monday the 4th of July 1988. Yeah. And it was initially hosted by Magenta Divine and Sankaguha. So Magenta, clearly, when it comes to presenters, is the patron saint of youth TV, right? If Janet yeah. Street Porter is the main producer, then Magenta is the main presenter. Absolutely. And obviously, both of these these presenters had followed Janet Street Porter over from Network 7. Yeah. They, they weren't involved in the second series of Network 7 because they jumped ship. And yeah, I think Magenta Divine is amazing. I always loved watching her. Rough Guide was really the first program of any of these youth shows that I watched. And it, it gave you, literally gave you a view of the world that you didn't otherwise see. Absolutely. It was completely different to Wish You Were Here or the holiday program. <laughs> yeah, Totally, because it was about a different sort of experience. It wasn't about going on a one-week or two-week holiday in this place. It was about going having the sort of backpacker, studenty, tourist, getting to know the locals, seeing the back streets, experiencing the arts and culture side of travel, wasn't it? Exactly. And, you know, in the places they went, they would occasionally show some of the, the big tourist attractions. But that, that fundamentally wasn't the point of the show. It was about getting behind the place that they were going to, getting to the heart of the destination. It wasn't about beaches and pools and no, villas, not. was it? definitely not. The first series focused on Europe. Uh -huh. So they visited Amsterdam. Naturally. Paris. Yeah. Dublin. Mm -hmm. Milan. Madrid. Yeah. Copenhagen. And Ljubljana. 
fantastic places to visit all of them yeah um, i've been lucky enough to go to all of them over the years and they're they're all very different and i think it's it's absolutely fair to say that rough guide gave me inspiration to go to these places Mm -hmm. you know i was was 10 when the show was on air so it was many many years later and you know ljubljana is the last one i've been to only in the last couple of years so it's it's literally been a 35 year journey to, to, to visit all these places but honestly it started with rough guides one of the things we should sort of say about the format is they were really able to switch from serious to light-hearted over the course of the episode. Yeah. And and it really was, already said this in relation to the other shows, but it really was properly researched journalism. Mm-hmm. And if you take somewhere like Amsterdam, they'll, of course, talk about the drug culture in Amsterdam. Naturally. It was restrictive. The BBC wouldn't let weed be shown on camera. But you wouldn't see Judith Chalmers covering this side of Amsterdam. No, she might have a glass of fruit juice on the beach, but she wouldn't be smoking a massive doob in Amsterdam, would she? No. Later series went further afield with Rough Guide to the World. An interesting example of this. <laughs> Sorry, I've just got <laughs> Judith Chalmers in my head. An interesting example of the sort of stories they covered is heavy metal in Cuba. Heavy metal and Marxism-Leninism isn't the most obvious combination, and you won't find much sign of the head-banging tendency in this record shop in the centre of Havana. Nevertheless, metal these days seems to be as much a part of the communist setup as May Day parades and the caring, sharing internal security police. It's come to represent about the only safe way of sticking two fingers up at the authorities, and its anti-establishment status here is guaranteed, because Fidel don't like it. I love a bit of Marxism-Leninism in my uh, travel documentaries. But I mean, who would have guessed that, you know, in the early 90s when that would have been uh, made, that heavy metal was a big thing in Cuba? Yeah, Rough Guide is the only place where you would hear stories like that. Yeah, absolutely. So you know how Magenta would normally wear shades all the time? Yeah. Well, after the first series, the BBC got a bit, well, is it appropriate for her to wear shades when she's presenting a serious piece? Right. And so they had to have a negotiation with her agent about how many times in the series she was prepared to wear clear lenses. (laughs) (laughs) Later on, Simon O'Brien hosted. Oh, yes, of Brookside fame. Yes. uh, Damon Grant, wasn't he, in Brookside? Yes. And, And probably most importantly, he was the lighthouse keeper in the last two series of Fraggle Rock. In the UK version of that, do you know, I was an adult when I realised that we had our own special introductory and end segments for Fraggle Rock and that we weren't seeing the same things that the Americans were. Fraggle Rock was designed for all the different countries it aired in to have different wraparound segments. Simon O'Brien had also done his own show on Def 2, hadn't yes. he? which was a, a football programme called Standing Room Only, which was, um, it was a football programme, but it was about fan culture. Yeah, and basically it's the first fanzine programme, isn't it? Yeah, very influential. You could also say that things like Fantasy Football League were ultimately born out of that show. Yeah, absolutely. There was a spin-off to Rough Guide, although it's not part of what I'm planning to commission, Rough Guide Careers, and that ran for five series and covered a range of different careers. Okay. Want to work in advertising, music or fashion? No, thank you. (laughs) They obviously covered some slightly more realistic careers as well. Yeah. But yeah, they say travel broadens the mind. Travel (laughs) schmabble. But, you know, not everyone can travel, and certainly not to the vast array of destinations covered on Rough Guide. And I think Rough Guide was really the next best thing. It's the travel show that broadened the mind. I think that's a really good reminder of what a good programme Rough Guide was. Thank you. Uh, Are you ready for my next pitch? Go on, what have you got next? Well, when Janet Street Porter left Network 7 for the BBC, some of her Network 7 colleagues stuck around to do the second series of Network 7 and then sort of stuck around making shows for Channel 4. Yes. One of them, Charlie Parsons, was put in charge of 
late night art programming on Channel 4 with a show called Club X. Mm. Now, I'm not pitching Club X, don't worry. Oh, really? (laughs) It ran for 23 weeks in 1989. It was every Wednesday live for 90 minutes, which is a lot of art programming to fill. It is. Every week they created an art event that was influenced by a particular avant-garde movement. So in one episode, they hosted a futurist dinner party and one of the guests was Paul Morley, the music journalist. And a waiter poured water over him. Yeah, and he punched the waiter and walked out. Yeah, which is fair enough, really. Yeah. Um, another week, naked women were covered in blue paint and used as human paintbrushes. Yeah. Which, in theory, was in homage to a performance art piece from the 1960s called uh, Anthropometry by Eve Klan. Mm. In practice, it was somewhat problematic. Yeah, I mean, it was all a bit pretentious, wasn't it? Yes, and actually it couldn't decide which side of the line it wanted to be on, and it ended up, I think, being the worst of both. Sometimes it was this pretentious, serious arts programme given a Network 7 twist, and sometimes it was a tacky, cheesy, popular entertainment show. It probably would have failed at being either of them, to be honest, but trying to be both at the same time, it was impossible to straddle. Yeah. So Charlie Parsons decided that the popular entertainment show with a bit of tackiness was the route to go down. Mm. And he pitched a new show to Channel 4, and he formed a TV production company um, with Wahid Ali called 24 Hour Productions. It would later merge with Bob Geldof's Planet Productions to become Planet 24. Of course. Infoblast. Charlie Parsons would go on to create the phenomenally successful reality competition television franchise Survivor. Yeah, thanks for that. Right at the point that the latest attempt to do Survivor in the UK has failed, (laughs) but phenomenally successful worldwide. Yes. So in 1990, 24-hour productions began making a new show for Channel 4, which will be my next pitch. The Word. Yes, you have to brace yourself for us talking about The Word. It was firmly aimed at 16 to 34-year-olds, and everyone who worked on it was comfortably within that age bracket themselves. Yes. Originally, it was broadcast at 6pm on Friday nights, which Mm. was the Tube's old slot. Unbelievable that it started at 6pm, given that we know what's coming. (laughs) Yes. Channel 4's chief executive, Michael Grade, moved it to 11pm, and The Word would take advantage of that with some very risque content. Very risque content, yes. The Word. This was far from a current affairs show. Mm Mm-hmm. They'd taken some of the style of Network 7, but they'd completely given up on news. Now it was all about entertainment. It was. I mean, they did still have uh, reports, didn't they? And then they covered stories, but they were very much from the entertainment angle. It was not designed to inform. You did not come away from an episode of The Word any more uh, intelligent than you went into it. No, you probably gave away less intelligent. (laughs) And let's be clear about this. I used to watch it. All the time. Well, obviously I did too. It wasn't futurist or postmodern, but it was groundbreaking in a rather different way. Yes. It was the very definition of post-pub entertainment. Mm. You know, it was on at 11pm. They knew people had just rolled out of the pub and they were aiming very squarely to entertain people who'd had a few pints. Yeah. It had celebrity interviews, live music and outrageous stunts. Yeah. I mean, just as an example, a man dressed as Father Christmas was pulled across the studio by his testicles. <laughs> One time they played a prank on the member of the public. Mm. Brace yourself for this because it's unpleasant in several ways. But the, the member of the public thought that their car was being stolen mm. and they were being secretly filmed like, uh, you know, candid camera. Yes. An Arab man comes over and says to them, do you want some help? And they say, yes, that person's trying to steal my car. 
and the Arab gentleman got shears out and apparently started cutting the thief's arm off. No. And the guy was wearing prosthetics and it looked like the arm was being cut off. I mean, it's obviously shocking and traumatising and violent and a bit racist. Everything about it is designed to be truly shocking. Mm. The word. The original presenters of The Word, do you remember who those two were? Well, Terry Christian, of course. Yes, yeah, so Mancunian Terry Christian, who was smug and arrogant. People were really snooty about Terry Christian, partly because of the accent. But he wasn't actually that bad, really. He could hold together live TV. Yeah, he, he had some talent, but he, he certainly um, he came across as being very pleased with himself. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, there was snobbery about him, but that was balanced out by the fact that the other presenter was Amanda Decadne. Yes. Who was super posh. Yes. She was only 18 years old when she started hosting The Word. Yeah. And within a year, she was married to a member of Duran Duran. I think of one, it's Duran Duran. <laughs> and then there was an episode where her brother hosted yes. instead. And he yeah, was and he's even posher. Somehow even posher. I mean, he was posher than the Queen. Yeah. Terry Christian and the Amanda Decadne were both almost universally loathed. Yes. Um, even people who liked the programme didn't like the presenters. I mean, at first, anyway, certainly we got used to them, and particularly in the case of Terry Christian, I think people warmed to him. Mm. But the fact that um, Terry Christian and Amanda Decadne were both in their own ways quite irritating just made the word even more talked about and, ironically, even more popular. Yeah, yeah, it definitely gave something to talk about for sure. Yeah. Another presenter was the comedian Mark Lamar. Mm. It was quite clear that he and Terry Christian could not stand each other. Yes. And it really added some edge to the programme. I mean, they would just be eye-rolling at the the segment that the previous one had just done. Mm. There was this real palpable animosity between the pair of the two of them when there was a handover. And uh, apparently one time backstage, Charlie Parsons had to separate them, pull them apart, um, because it was about to boil over into fisticuffs. Yeah. It's an interesting way of doing Edge, isn't it? Having two people that don't like each other. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a bit soppy and think that it would be much nicer if people got on. But but this wasn't this wasn't a nice program. It wasn't designed no. to be nice. It was um, it was designed to be talked about and to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's yeah. not my favourite way of doing TV either. But you know they were aiming for a particular tone and they they got it. Mm. Some of the other presenters included Danny Burr, Katie Puckrick, and Hufty. Yes. Now, we talked about how the Ross family are uh, TV royalty in this country. Jonathan's brother, Paul, was the series editor for series three and four, and he was the executive producer for series five. And although he didn't create the segment we're about to talk about, there is one particular segment that he is most associated with. Yes. Could you be about to talk about the hopefuls? I am about to talk about the hopefuls. This is a segment where members of the public would, in quotes, do anything to be on TV. Yes. Drinking pints of sick, mm. eating blocks of lard, yes, uh, raking for a party whistle inside animal guts, right. eating sandwiches filled with pubic hair oh. or verrucas oh. or toenails, yes, dipping a finger in a man's sweaty belly button and then licking the residue. Oh, it's disgusting! Isn't it, it is disgusting. I mean, the hopefuls was so shocking and remains shocking, and nothing that I've seen in TV in the decades that have followed have made it any more palatable. No. And it's it's a weird one, isn't it? Because actually, the people there, I think, genuinely wanted to be on TV. It's not like they were being conned into doing this. They knew exactly what was coming, and they've only got themselves to blame. There was a bit more of a feeling that 
there was some currency to being on TV in those days. Yes. That it, having been on TV gave you some cachet and it was worth doing these things for. I don't think you'd be able to persuade somebody to do it now. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people go on reality TV today. That is true. That is true. Um, but you want more out of it than just 30 seconds on the word, right? Yes. You, you, you want some profile to come out of it in this... Um, yeah, definitely we live in a time where people will do ridiculous things yeah. for attention. I'm not denying that for a second. I'm just saying a few seconds on Channel 4 now wouldn't you would, be considered valuable enough. No. The word. Some of the memorable moments on The Word. Mm? Oliver Reed performing Wild Thing with Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Was, was Oliver Reed drunk by any chance? I'm afraid he was a little bit drunk, yes. We've heard this happen before, him doing Wild Thing drunk, haven't we? We have on our Chat Shows episode. Also yeah. on our Chat Shows episode, we talked about Rod Hull and Emu mm. um, attacking Parkinson. Yes. Well, on The Word, they attacked Snoop Dogg, oh, which I think is a bit braver than uh, tackling Parkinson. Mm. You don't attack the D-O-double-G, do you? No, you just don't. We had Rage Against the Machine performing Killing in the Name, uncensored. Yes. Long before the Radio 5 Live debacle in 2009. Oh, yeah, when they swore on live radio despite <laughs> being told not to. Yeah, do what I tell you, as if they're going to comply. Yeah. On the word, they didn't try to censor the performance, though, did they? No, they knew they were going to swear, and they did. Yeah. The Word also had Nirvana's first ever televised performance. Mm. They did Smells Like Teen Spirit. And the studio just went crazy. Yeah, it was a huge announcement of this is this massive band, or they're about to be massive. Mm. And from that moment on, they were massive. Yeah, it was the moment that made them massive in this country. In this certainly. country, for sure, yeah. Kurt Cobain declared, I'd like all of you people in this room to know that Courtney Love, the lead singer of the sensational pop group Hole, is the best fuck in the world. <laughs> this is their first ever televised performance in the world, by the way. Mm. So, you know, he definitely took that opportunity. Yes. The lead singer of L7, Danita Sparks, removed her jeans and her underwear to show her vulva. And a moment that I remember very clearly. <laughs> really? <laughs> We also had Oasis's first televised performance was on the word. Yeah. And of course, it was um, Joe Wiley was one of the key people that were booking these acts, wasn't she? She was the music booker on the show, and she did do a really good job of getting the bands, despite anything you might hear me saying about her presenting skills. Yes. Shabaranks, talking about musical acts who were booked on the word. He said that gay men should be crucified. Yeah, outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. But Mark Lamar, fair play to him, completely took him to task and very heavily rebuked him. But he's got freedom of speech, but his freedom of speech is saying go and shoot gay people. Surely that's wrong. Well, most definitely right now, from a far fit the law of God Almighty, you deserve crucifixion. Most definitely. The Bible. The Bible. I live by the concept of the Bible, which is the righteousness of every human being. And the Bible stated that man should multiply. The multiplication is done by a male and a female. That's absolute crap, and you know it. No, I would never. You can't advocate. You can't advocate people down around shooting other people. Yeah. The Bible does not condone shooting people Listen. just because of their sexual proclivities. Let's onto something lighter, actually. Well, you can do what you want. I think Mark is just brilliant in that clip, especially when he gets pissed off that they're trying to move on. You know, he just wants to deal with this outrageous comment. Yes. Now, I have beef with Mark Lamar. Oh, really? I was once in a quiz team with him. And oh, really? I take a quiz, you know, an appropriate level of seriously. Mm. He didn't put in any effort at all, even though he's clearly a very intelligent and knowledgeable man. And I argued that he should be trying harder. Um, he said, well, why should I bother? It's just a stupid quiz. I said, that's a loser's attitude. He said, no, it's a winner's attitude. <laughs> but, you know, despite the beef that I've got with Mark Lamar, he's done well there. He has. 
Terry Christian once asked some particularly inappropriate and sexist questions of pop duo Femme to Femme. Mm. Um, this led to a female audience member standing up and slapping him hard across the face. <laughs> well, good for her. Yes. And uh, I think when Chris Rock was slapped at the Oscars, Terry Christian tweeted, I was getting slapped across the face when Will Smith was still the Fresh Prince of Bella. <laughs> the word. More than anything else, The Word was the show that prompted the Daily Mail to refer to Michael Grade as Britain's pornographer-in-chief. Yes, which I always thought was a bit weird because, I mean, okay, you have just mentioned a vulva there, but it wasn't really pornographic, The Word, normally. Well, who it was who outrageous. Thought, yeah, the, the Daily Mail being ridiculously over the top in its criticisms. No great surprise, is it? Well, true. Channel 4 started to lose faith in the word. Mm. I think at least in part because of the negative publicity that it was generating. Now, don't get me wrong, Channel 4 wanted it to generate negative publicity. They knew that it would. Mm. They wanted to get attention. They wanted the sort of chattering classes at dinner parties to be turning their nose up to it. And they knew that's how it was doing its job. Yeah. But I think after a while, they thought... It's done its job now, and this is getting a bit tiresome. Um, Yes. So the word finished in 1995. The next year, in the same slot, Channel 4 launched The Girly Show, which was made by Rapido TV, so there's a link to Def 2. Yeah, so Rapido TV started to make quite a lot of shows, didn't they, beyond uh, the original Rapido on Def 2? Yeah. Like the word, The Girly Show was supposed to be edgy and dangerous. Its regular features included Wanker of the Week, for example. Yes. Its presenters were all female, and they didn't have a lot of broadcasting experience. The press were savage about The Girly Show. It was absolutely panned by critics as being amateurish. As if there had been nothing amateurish on youth TV up to that point, and I think there was something a bit sexist about the way that they went for it. Yeah, there obviously was an element of sexism. I remember tuning into the first episode of The Girly Show, and it had been promoted as more outrageous than the word. Yeah. You know, that was genuinely how Channel 4 were pushing yeah, it. Yeah, and it didn't live up to that. It did not live up to that at all, and that was its problem. Yeah. And if it had just been launched without directly referencing the word, I mean, obviously it was always going to get comparisons just because of the slot it was in. Yeah. If, if they hadn't pushed that narrative of this is bigger and better and more outrageous than the word, it might have done better. Yeah. I mean, it's worth noting that one of its presenters, Sarah Cox, is now recognised as one of this country's very finest broadcasters. Absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, that's my pitch for the word. Okay. A very strong pitch for a very outrageous show. You've got one more pitch. What's it going to be? Well, in the mid-1990s, BBC Two, amazingly, had a slot on Sunday afternoons that it used for comedy programmes aimed at people in their 20s. Yes. Sometimes it would use it to show repeats of Fantasy Football League or Shooting Stars. Yep. But it would also put new shows in there, including This Morning with Richard Not Judy, mm. which starred Stuart Lee and Richard Herring, which yep. we must talk about sometime. Definitely. And then it also showed the show which I'm about to pitch, The Sunday Show. Very originally titled. <laughs> yes. BBC Scotland have reused that title for a political show in recent years, in fact, yes. which is very different from the show that I'm about to pitch. Mm. Sunday Afternoon was, of course, the old Network 7 time slot. Yeah. And this show was produced by a former presenter of Network 7 and the main presenter of Club X, Murray Bolland. Yes. The Sunday show ran from March 1995 to December 1997 across four series. Mm. Originally, it was hosted by Donna McPhail and Katie Puckrick, who we heard about as a presenter on The Word. Paul Tonkinson replaced her from Series 3 and Jenny Ross replaced Donna McPhail from Series 4. 
Now, if the word had ditched the current affairs and futurist outlook of Network 7, the Sunday show went further and ditched all attempts at being groundbreaking or revolutionary. Yes. It was all played for laughs. They'd have features like unusual news stories or celebrity gossip or reviews of pop music or reviews of soap operas and so on, but it was all intended to be comedic. Yeah. Didn't all land comedically, but that was the aim for all of it. It did still have an edge. But here, the edginess came from being shockingly irreverent to the celebrity class Mm. and also from doing things that were much too naughty for midday on a Sunday. Yeah. So do you remember the soap opera review section? Yes. The the character reviewing the soap operas was called? Soapy Dick. (laughs) Yes. So that was Richard Arnold, who's since gone on to become a stalwart of ITV's morning programmes. Indeed. But his name is Dick. It's fine. If anyone thought that's rude, it's not. (laughs) Well, that didn't work for Morning Wood, did it, on Dick and Dom? It didn't, no. Bez from the Happy Mondays would do science experiments or DIY. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And perhaps most memorably, Dennis Pennis, who was a character played by Paul Kay, Mm. would go onto the red carpet at showbiz events and ask very rude questions of the celebrities. Indeed. To share, he said, has anyone ever told you you're really beautiful and meant it? Oh, to Demi Moore, if it wasn't gratuitous and it was tastefully done, would you consider keeping your clothes on in a movie? Very good. And to Steve Martin, how come you're not funny anymore? Oh, oh. I'm a bit of Steve Martin fan, so that's that's harsh. Yeah, I remember Paul Kay saying he slightly regretted that one because he was a Steve Martin fan himself. And you can see Steve Martin comes over, someone's pointing a microphone, he's got his like showbiz eyes and teeth on, mm. and that question is asked. And you can just see his heart sink, it's quite mean. Yeah, and of course Dennis Pennis would have BBC on the microphone quite yeah. prominently, so they were playing on the BBC's reputation. Exactly, and it's quite surprising that the BBC allowed it. Yeah. Yeah. It was shocking and it did seem very brave. And also, there was something subversive just about being in that privileged position of speaking to A list celebrities. And this is the 90s when celebrities really were revered. Mm. And then, quite apart from the fact that you took the piss out of them, it was just throwing the opportunity away, right? Yeah. And that's sort of the gag, isn't it? It's like this famous person comes up to talk to you and then you just throw it away by saying something rude to them. Yeah. I did find it very funny at the time, Dennis Pennis. I thought those segments were hilarious. Yeah, absolutely. I found Dennis Pennis very funny at the time. I look back at it now, I think it's very 90s lad. Mm. Um, It's a bit mean-spirited, and it's often quite sexist or misogynistic as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, I found it funny at the time. I don't think it bears up as well as as I remember it. As well as Paul Kay, there was another Kay, Peter Kay. Oh, yeah. He got his first start in TV on the Sunday show doing his World of Entertainment piece. Mm. He was very young and he perhaps looked a little bit nervous, but much of his comedic persona was already there, right? It it was already very much like, who remembers Bullseye, eh? Dickhead. (laughs) Yeah. Um, On the whole, the Sunday show wasn't anywhere near as edgy as the word, although it did, as I said, push boundaries for its time slot. Mm. And I think it was pretty good. It was pretty funny. Perhaps its biggest failure is that nobody really hated it. Yeah, it didn't, didn't shock in the way the word did. It wasn't a brand new innovative format in the way Network 7 was. Yeah, you would either watch it and enjoy it, Mm. or you would be a little bit shocked to find that there was something so rude on a Sunday lunchtime. Or, and this was what the majority of people did, you would just shrug and ignore it. Yeah. It's good that you've brought that, though, as your final pitch, because it's also effectively the last of these youth shows. Yes, that's right. There, there would be other shows influenced by youth TV, but this was the last time that one was sort of explicitly launched at that demographic in that style. Yeah. 
So that's my fourth and final pitch. Yep. Infoblast. John has pitched successfully in four episodes of this series of Cracking TV. Luke has also been successful four times. John has been thrown out of the commissioner's office on two occasions, and Luke has been thrown out three times. Is this thing starting to get on your nerves? A little bit, yeah. Let me see if I can find the plug. Ah, there we go. Infoblast. Oh, please, I only want to give you information. Oh, thank goodness for that. Indeed. So look, we can't finish the story without talking about what happened to some of the key players in the history of youth TV. Yeah. So Janet Street Porter left the BBC in 1994 to work for Mirror Group Newspapers as the Joint Managing Director of their cable TV channel Live TV. Oh yes, topless darts and news bunny. Ultimately, but that was after she'd gone because yeah. unfortunately for her, her partner in this enterprise was the world's worst human being, Kelvin McKenzie. And so she quit after four months. Four months with McKenzie. I mean, it's like lifetime, isn't it? <laughs> she later became editor of the Independence on Sunday newspaper and president of the Ramblers Association. Mm. And she's now a regular panellist on ITV's Loose Women, yeah. which, you know, is not groundbreaking youth TV, is it? No, not at all. Jane Hewland went on to found her own production company and would produce Games Master for Channel 4 and Dream Team for Sky One. Yeah. And Magenta Divine sadly died in 2019, aged just 61. Yeah, far too soon. So what's the legacy of what they created together? I'd say it certainly had a lasting influence. For sure. There are programmes that weren't explicitly aimed at the 16 to 34-year-old demographic, but which were clearly influenced by the youth shows of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Eurotrash, I mean, that's pretty similar to a UTV show, although it would have aimed at slightly older viewers as well as the younger ones. Eurotrash doesn't quite qualify as a youth show, even though obviously the same audience was watching it, but it had that wider audience as well. Same producers and the same style. Yeah. There was The Big Breakfast, which was produced by Planet 24. That was really revolutionary morning TV. We'll definitely cover it in a later episode. Had its own style, but was very influenced by Network 7 and The Word. Absolutely. I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. In the 90s, you would not see celebrities doing incredibly ridiculous things. You'd see them doing some very stage-managed silly things on something like You Bet. Yes. But you wouldn't see them making an absolute fool of themselves. And you wouldn't see anybody eating testicles on ITV. I remember seeing an episode of You Bet. It was Ant and or Deck, actually. They had to do the celebrity forfeit. All they had to do was put their hand in a box of maggots and fish out the You Bet medal. Right. Ant and or Deck were playing this up. And obviously they were playing it up for the cameras. Yeah. As being an absolutely awful thing they had to do. But literally all they had to do was touch a few maggots. That was the level of the stunt that celebrities had to do in the 90s. But you would see much more extreme things on the word, and that has now migrated over to ITV with Ant and or Deck getting celebrities to do extreme things. Five News? Yeah, very interesting presentation style. Yeah, when Channel 5 launched, they consciously made their news bulletin more accessible with Kirsty Young perched on her desk, mm. quick cuts, music beds playing throughout, and some very Network 7 style graphics. And then just TV channel idents in general. Mm. From the 90s onwards, pioneered by BBC Two, they became much jazzier, and I think that can be traced back to Network 7. I think you're right. You know, presentation changed in the 90s, and branding your channel really matters. And you can definitely see the Network 7 influence on that. Yeah. So, overall, was youth TV any good, or was it basically a load of crap? <laughs> Well, there's a question, isn't there? It was much derided at the time, and especially about 10 years later. Mm. Often referred to as youth TV, of course. Y-O-O-F. Yeah. That's what newspaper journalists or private eye would refer to it as. Yeah. Was it try-hard? 
Was it amateurish? Was it patronising? Was it just poor quality? Mm. Or was it innovative and groundbreaking? It could be all of those things. I think that's right. Young people do tend to like their entertainment to be dangerous and novel. We see that in film and in music and in literature. Youth TV took a lot of risks, and so inevitably it often failed. But when it succeeded, and we've talked about some examples of it succeeding today, it did sometimes make for great TV. Absolutely, and it made, in some cases, for TV that that changed other parts of TV. Genuinely innovative, groundbreaking stuff. Right, so there has to be space for trying new things and pushing boundaries, and the bits that work get kept on, Yeah, and the bits that fail are consigned to the dustbin of history. But you can't look back at those failures and say, wasn't that crap? You have to recognise that in order for some progress to be made, some mistakes had to be made. Absolutely. Um, There's also something to be said for TV being a bit crap on purpose, and I think (laughs) this happens on the word I don't think all of the failures on the word are actually failures I think some of them are deliberate successes because you were trying to be talked about yeah yeah that's that's a good point so I think it was overall youth TV a good thing mm. it might not be required on broadcast TV these days or on streaming platforms because young people who want to make content for other young people or break boundaries or find their way around how to create content will just do it and they'll put it on TikTok. They don't need broadcasters to give them a budget or a time slot. No. And I think it's very sad that something like Network 7 doesn't exist anymore because, you know, however good someone is going to be in producing their short form content for TikTok, it's not going to be the deeply researched story that you would have seen on Network 7 or Rough Guide or Reportage, right? No, that's right. And another thing I liked about these shows is that they're live and there's so little live TV left these days. Certainly, no one is handing out the sort of budgets you'd need for well-researched, highly produced live TV these days. That's absolutely right. I mean, I mentioned earlier that long credit list on Reportage. And, you know, Network 7, when it was live on a Sunday, would have at least one, but sometimes two other OBs as well. Yeah. The expense of making that programme, nobody would invest that money today. And it's really sad. It is sad. Overall, I mean, you're the commissioner here, but I would say that the genre of youth TV for our generation and for people a little bit older than us was a qualified success. Yes, I think that is a fair conclusion. But we now need to conclude our show and find out which show I'm going to commission and put on Cracking TV. Yes, we do. Now, as is traditional, I first of all have to establish if you are a suitable producer of youth television. Yes, you do. And you know how we'd normally have a quiz at this point? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's entirely appropriate when it comes to youth TV. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to really show that you really, really want this. You want to be a youth TV producer. Yes. We could say that you're hopeful in being a a youth TV producer, right? No, 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 no. So I think think maybe some sort of challenge is where we should go with this. Right. I'm going to mix up um, a little cocktail for you. Right. And uh, you have to drink it. If you do drink it, I think that'll prove to me that you really want to be that youth TV producer. Okay. Now, I happen to know that you can't stand tomato juice and celery. God, I hate them so much. So I thought, why don't we make our own version of a Bloody Mary? Right. So I'm just going to blend up some tomato juice, celery, throw in a bit of Tabasco. Okay. Give you a nice cocktail. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. 
I think it needs a little bit of garnish, though. Right. And I've just prepared a couple of toenail cuttings that I'll, <laughs> oh, I'll, no! I'll put on top for you. Oh, God, are they yours? Yes. I hope you washed your feet. Look, I'm not that disgusting. I have washed my feet. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I actually feel like I could be sick before I even sip this, just thinking about it. Oh, God. Are you ready for the challenge? Yes. Here goes. Do I have to drink all of it? Well, yeah, if you want maximum points. Okay, I'm going to down the whole thing, although I can't promise I'm going to keep it down. How's that? Yeah, make sure that you, you're not sick over the studio equipment. <laughs> okay. All right, here goes. <laughs> I can't, I can't, all right, I can't down it in one, but okay. I've got, I've got a good third of it down there. Let me see if I can get the rest. Okay. <laughs> So disgusting. Okay, thank God. Okay, I can finish it in this. You're doing well. I can finish it in this go. <coughs> okay, I've done it. Well, uh, congratulations. I think you've got above and beyond there, and you've definitely <laughs> proven you could produce a youth TV show. I hate you. <laughs> uh why is it always me? It's me that loses out on quarter of a million pounds. It's me that gets screwed over on the top of the pops thing, and now it's me that's going to drink your toenails. You, you've done similar to me. <laughs> I can't remember ever doing anything vaguely similar to you. Yeah, actually, I'm struggling. <laughs> you've absolutely passed and, and shown that you're good for producing a youth show, but now we have to find out if you're going to get to produce a youth show. You know, you might have drunk that in vain, because I might just give it to Rough oh, Guide. God. I hope not. You brought something else, Network 7, The Word and The Sunday Show. You also talked about Def 2, and from Def 2, I wanted to commission Rough Guides. Yes. It's time for me to make my decision. I think I'm going to jump straight into the first show you talked about, something else. I don't think you're expecting me to commission that. No, fair enough. I think it's good to have talked about it. It, it is arguably the first youth show but let's rule it out early doors. Okay. I think if we then fast forward to the last show you talked about, the Sunday show, yeah. which we're saying is you know, effectively the last show in this genre because youth shows and the style took over TV more generally, Yeah. I think I can also rule out the Sunday show pretty quickly. Obviously, Dennis Pennis was very popular at the time. Like you, I found him very funny at the time. But I think overall, we can't say that the Sunday show had the same impact as Network 7 or The Word or a show like Rough Guides. I think that's fair. I think we basically have to go in one of two directions. Whether it's Network 7 or Rough Guides, we're basically looking at a show that has been extensively researched, mm. absolute journalistic integrity behind the whole show, mm -hmm. or we go down the route of post-pub entertainment and the word. Yeah. I had thought, before we started doing a show about youth TV, that in some ways... In spite of the fact I brought Rough Guide, surely the word is the ultimate youth show. Yeah. But you know what? I actually think I want to go in the direction of the factual entertainment. And however groundbreaking the word was, and it is a hugely important programme, mm. I'm not going to put the word on cracking TV. Okay. So you're looking more for journalism than for absolute silliness. I think so. I mean, I know it might be controversial. Well, it's your decision. And as I said earlier, Rough Guide genuinely was a show that influenced me, that made me want to go and see places. So it's hugely important to me personally. Right. 
And then Network 7, you know, groundbreaking show. It genuinely changed the language of TV. Mm -hmm. It was that mix of being interesting and innovative. If we're honest, also at times shoddy. Yeah. Sometimes it did feature presenters who weren't necessarily that good. But fundamentally, I think Network 7, more than any other show, certainly in youth TV, but actually it stands up there with many shows that have changed TV. Network 7 is hugely, hugely important. So it's interesting that the final two that you've come down to are the two Janet Street Porter shows. Yes. So are you going to go for the OG Janet Street Porter youth TV format of Network 7 or slightly more polished rough guide? I think, I think because it's so important to TV more widely, there is only one show I can go with. Come on, come on, come on. I'm going to give it to Network 7. Yes! Oh, thank you. That was worth downing your toenails for. Congratulations. Yeah, the cocktail was not in vain. (laughs) Well, I'll have to start thinking up uh, new ways to present the news then. I'm thinking we're going to start kidnapping public figures, throwing them in the back of a van, driving them to an edge of a cliff and interviewing them as they're tied to a chair. Uh, That's not quite what I was thinking. I'm just spitballing. That's just my first idea. Okay. So that was Youth TV on Cracking TV. It was produced and presented by me, Luke Sluman, and the successful, but still about to vomit, John Furlong. Our rather marvellous theme tune was written and performed by Simon McInerney. Luke and John Cracking TV is an IHOG Factual Entertainment production. It's time to change the channel to Luke and John Cracking TV. Luke and John Cracking TV.